You're listening to Stand Out with Ian O'Connell. Wednesday evenings from 8pm here on Radio Kerry. Now you're very welcome to the show tonight. I hope I find you well on this Wednesday evening. I hope you're all having a great week so far and you're enjoying the first week of the the new year and you're all, I suppose some people, they make New Year's resolutions and some people stick to them and others don't. They could say, I'm not going to have chocolate at all this year. And they go into the shop and see a chocolate bar on the shelf and they say, one of them won't harm me, I suppose. And they eat the bar, but sure, look, some people do, some people don't make any resolutions. They just make a promise that they're going to do something better in their life or it can be anything. Some people stick to them and other people don't. Like I said, some people don't believe in them at all. I'm delighted to say that my guest this week on Stand Out with myself, Eno O'Connell, is Sarah Lagarde. Sarah's life took a tragic turn when she slipped onto the tube tracks in wet weather. She lost her right arm and leg when she was run over by two London underground trains. The horrible accident happened as Sarah was travelling home from work on a rainy night on September 30th, 2022. Sarah recalls lying on the tracks calling for help for about 15 minutes before anybody heard her cries for help. Emergency services were called and she was airlifted to the Royal London Hospital. I hope you all enjoyed the, the show tonight and I know that you will pick something up interesting from um, Sarah's story and you might learn a thing or two as well. Sit back and enjoy the show. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on today. How's, um, how's I suppose, we were just saying there before we came on air Christmas over, over two weeks ago, it's, um, it's mad. You had a great, great time, did you? Yes, I did have a good time with my uh, with my small family. So just my my husband and my two daughters, but it was lovely. Oh, um, how old are they? Are they were they buzzing for Christmas? So my littlest one is nine, and then the older one is thirteen. So, but uh, but they enjoyed the time with us with the parents for sure. That's what it's uh, that's what it's it's all about, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, I I always like to ask my guests. Um, I suppose. I suppose for you now it's kind of a a different story because um a lot of people would have heard your story already. Do you wanna talk to me about um when you were younger growing up? Were you what were you interested in? Did you like sports or what was your your kind of background? Um, I yes, I did enjoy quite a bit of sporting activities. I I grew up in the south of France in the Pyrenees, so. I did enjoy skiing and snowboarding quite a bit in in winter days, and then uh, and then in the summer I, you know, lately loved hiking, uh, as a as an adult and yeah, I try to keep as fit as possible. It was a, a typical um typical childhood. I loved love sports and um keeping keeping active as you as you said. Did you um you moved over to London and obviously from the south of France? Did you? Um, yeah, I, I, my, my background is quite European, so I, I moved around a few countries, and uh, and ended up in in London, which was so multicultural that I felt, I felt welcome as a as as a as a European. <laughs> and then Brexit happened, so that's a whole different story. But <laughs> but I've I've been I've been in London for quite some some years. Yeah, I was actually only over there in. I think it was last March. I was at something in the the O2. It's all it's so full on London. It's so busy, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, I suppose, like I said at the start, people might have heard your um 
your story already, but do you want to bring me back to, I suppose, the day that this happened? You were on your, your way home from work kind of late at night, were you? Yes, so it was on a Friday, Friday the uh, 30th of September, and uh, I stayed a little later than I, I usually would at work, and that night it was, the weather wasn't that great, it was raining quite heavily, and um, and I made that split decision that instead of waiting for a cab that just wouldn't come, uh, I took the, the, the tube instead, and that was probably... The one second that changed my life completely um, and I boarded a train. It was warm in the carriage as opposed to cold and rainy outside. And uh, and I thought I was going to rest my eyes for just two seconds. And then I woke up having missed my stop. It's um, it's always those last decisions uh, because I'm saying when I had my accident, I was going out with my friend cycling and I fell off. My bike and like yourself there, you made the decision to go on the the, the train instead of the taxi or the cab. Would you have mainly travelled around by cab in London when you were going around? No, I normally would take public transport. And this was just because I needed to be home as fast as possible. I was already late. I needed to tuck my, my, my kids into bed, make sure that they had packed their... Um, their um, their stuff for the next day because we were meant to fly out to Germany where my dad lives and it was his 70th birthday party that weekend and so yeah I was quite keen to get home fast and hence I thought okay because it's raining let me just quickly hop into a cab get home and get you know get going with the activities of the evening and then none of that happened (laughs) sadly. It changed the whole the the whole story. You um you got off the train and you realized was it that you were at the wrong the wrong station. That's right. So I I knew that the same train was set to go back into the city. So um I thought I'd just rebought that train and um and I slipped in a puddle. Um this was it's the underground, but it has overground stations. So this was an overground station um called High Barnet. And um, and I remember this quite vividly, seeing the light reflecting in the in the water, and I slipped, lost my balance, and fell against the stationary train carriage, and uh, and in the fall against the train carriage, I broke my nose, my two front teeth, and I got a cut under the chin, and I fell backwards. I remember that sensation of falling backwards into um, into the darkness in between the train and the platform. That must have been because even thinking back now, like well, at that time at night, um, Sarah was it uh, very busy as well. Like it would be during the day. Um, I guess it wasn't that late. It was after nine p.m. on a Friday. It's not that late, and you could see that on the CCTV footage there were still people, you know, exiting the train, walking around the platform. So it wasn't empty, um, but. Uh, but nobody saw me fall, and nobody heard my cries for help, and uh, and that was the beginning of my of my nightmare. You know, I could have gotten away with a broken nose, and yeah. you know that would have been so fixable. And and the train departed and 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 cut off my my right arm above the elbow, and then 
I was, I tried to save myself. Um, I was, I didn't lose consciousness. And I, I do remember an intense flash of pain. And then the adrenaline must have switched off that pain switch brain and but I knew that something really bad had happened I, I could feel that my 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 right side had been completely paralyzed and um and I tried to save myself I was on the tracks for about 15 minutes a second train came into the station crushed my my, my right leg below the knee um coming into the station so I was stuck under the train I was still conscious and still calling out for help and eventually somebody heard me but again disappointing safety measures here because it took staff you know five minutes to call for the emergency services which is five minutes doesn't seem very long but when you're bleeding out you know you can your body can bleed out in less than four minutes so it was yeah it's a miracle that i'm alive like a complete miracle it's 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 actually it's crazy to to I suppose when I was reading up about your story and even hear you on Tommy Tiernan like that they said that um what did they tell you you were saying on the the show that you had ten times that you stayed alive when you had the accident was it that's that's right I mean there were things like well first I could have bled out quite easily um, and it's only because I stayed calm. I slowed down my heartbeat and that meant that you know I I had control over um the amount of blood that I that I was losing and um I really there was a moment I got really angry because I thought you know just a month before the accident I'd climbed Kilimanjaro with my husband and mm. I thought I did not climb that amazing mountain to die in a dirty ditch you know, like I got really angry at that moment. I said, no, I'm making a decision. I am not dying. And uh, and then there was a moment where I felt like I actually was dying. There was this clump of ice inside my chest that started spreading. And it was the the the, the mental image of my of my children that gave me the strength to not give up and to continue fighting. Um when you when you were there, I remember reading you um you actually tried to get your phone that you dropped on the, the track and you tried and it didn't um the face recognition didn't work was it yeah that's right so in the fall i'd lost my my mobile phone and it fell onto the track so a bit further away from me and uh and i could see it um because it's got um it had a a neon casing and a neon lanyard and so despite my injuries, um, I managed to crawl over the, 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 the tracks to retrieve the phone because I thought that would save me, right? And um, and I tried to call my husband. He was the first person that sprang, sprang to mind, and uh, but the facial recognition didn't, didn't recognize me. And in hindsight, no wonder, because it must have been, you know, bloodied and and misshapen and um and then i tried to open up the phone typing in the the code with my non-dominant remaining left hand and uh and my digits were wet and the phone was wet everything was wet and i couldn't dry it and so 
yeah, I had to abandon that. The idea of the, the, the phone. And like you said, you one month before you went up Kilimanjaro and you said at the start of the show that you liked kind of um, adventuring. Was that always a, I suppose, a long-term goal to get up Kilimanjaro or was it something that just um, came about? Oh, no, it was a dream 10 years in the making. Really? I, oh, yeah. My husband and I had been talking about this place so many times over such a long period of time. And it was it was the challenge in itself, the the the, the distance, you know, can I can we both manage at that altitude? And uh, but it was mainly because it's in Tanzania and it is a beautiful country and it's the it's a mountain with so many different um, facets to it. So it, it was a magical destination for us. And finally, after we both turned 40, we decided, yes, let's do it. And did you um, did you do any other, I suppose, um, mountains or other kind of big, um, big mountains before that? Or was that the, the kind of first one? It was the first one, really. I mean, we did, we did, um, keep fit by walking um, something called the London Loop, which is a walkway around um, around London where you walk in forests and it's quite scenic. And we had done that um, 10 kilometers every Sunday with the, with the girls. And uh, that was the preparation. Then we climbed um, Snowdon, uh, which was uh, in comparison tiny, but it was kind of giving us a flavor of what okay. to expect. And um, but no, it was uh, it wasn't a huge amount of, of of training time that we that we put into it. I guess you know a lot of willpower helps. <laughs> Will willpower to, to to drive on. Um, you said there when you were um lying down on the 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 tracks era. What was the? Because I know myself when something's happened to me, I automatically think the worst that's going to happen, which is. Which is it's not the the best way of dealing with um with stuff. But what was the first time I suppose major decision that you had to make? Was it because I know if it was me, I'd have been thinking like of getting electrocuted or something. Did they have to kind of deal with that side of the things as well before they were able to get to you? Yes, I I think they they took significant time to find the right person to switch off the power line because I was wedged underneath the train, um, the air ambulance paramedics couldn't get to me because they were worried about electrocution as well. So it took additional time um, to locate the right person and to get that switched off. Meanwhile, I was under the carriage, you know, fighting for my life. And um, how did you, I suppose, after the whole situation, obviously you were in hospital and stuff, they airlifted you to London Royal Hospital, did they? So, yeah, the, the air ambulance took me to the Royal London Hospital. And uh, and that was lucky for me because they are um, the best or, or one of the best, for sure, hospitals that deal with major trauma. Um, had it been any other hospital, I don't think I would have survived. And um, I know from watching... Um, things on uh, on say TV of London kind of paramedics and that's that side of um of stuff. Are the air ambulance, would I be right in saying they're able to kind of treat the person at the scene as well, are they? Yes, and that that's the amazing part about this emergency service is that 
they are not just a patient transport. Um, they do have uh, fully equipped operating theatre, so to speak, um, at their disposal. So they arrive and treat the patient. They treated me on site on the platform where they scan your body for all of the injuries. They put the tourniquet on uh, both my arm and my leg to make sure that I didn't bleed out. They administered some pain relief too. Um, and that early intervention is also the reason why I'm still alive today. And it's the it's the smallest things like that, um, Sarah, tourniquet, and even people, I suppose everybody in the world, no matter how old you are, they should learn as simple things as, as CPR and all of um all of that. But how to use a tourniquet, the smallest things like that, they should be yeah. training in schools and everything for that kind of thing, shouldn't they? Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, you know, again, the reaction of the staff needing five minutes to call emergency services, that's completely unacceptable. Everybody should know which number to call when you, you know, are in an emergency situation. It should take you 10 seconds, not five minutes. You know. How um, how long were you in? I remember reading you were, I think you were like four weeks in the trauma ward and six in, in rehab or or something close to that anyway. How was your um time in hospital? Because the people in hospitals there they're kind of, they're brilliant from my own, I suppose, experience and you kind of build a, a friendship with the, the physios and, and that kind of thing. How did you deal mentally with the whole, I suppose, if you had operations and rehabilitation? It was um quite a confusing time <laughs> to be you know the 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 i spent three weeks in in the trauma um ward at royal london hospital before i got moved along to the um rehabilitation center for amputees where i spent six weeks so you were you're right on that um i guess the first few days and weeks are just very confusing because i went from somebody who was completely able-bodied to severely disabled. I, I guess you can empathize with that as well. Um, and it's hard to wrap your head around it, right? So I think in that uncertain moment, because I truly believed I would never be able to walk again, nor hold a job, nor do anything, um, you know, not be a wife to my husband anymore, a mother to my children. It was really, really... Um, hard to realize that but at the same time i think i had a uh, an extra doses of oxytocin there um because all i wanted to do was to be grateful for the fact that i was alive and all i wanted to do was to connect with people around me and especially the the, the staff that looked after me because i wanted to make sure that they understood that i was worth saving that I wasn't just the number in in a hospital bed, that actually I was going to get better. I was going to, um, you know, not be a burden and walk out of there as soon as possible. You um, you didn't just want to be a, a statistic as you um as you you said. How important um because I suppose whenever anyone faces adversity and and um any hardship in life, it's it's the people around them that can be mostly important and um. I know from even just talking to you here this morning, your your husband and kids there, you're you're very close to to each other. How important were people like that? I suppose um in your life, Sarah, when you were going through all the the hardship and after your your accident, having people 
with you that were there for you? I I remember that before the accident, I probably was somebody who was happy to help others, but I was very shy and taking someone else's help. Like I would never ask for help. I was really, really independent in that way. And overnight, I became so dependent on others. It was a very strange feeling. And I, I quickly realized that, you know, probably we were never meant to be operating completely on our own. I think we were meant to be a community um, in order to survive and thrive. We needed to have the support of the people around us. And today, as well as during my, my recovery, it was the people and their support, their emotional and physical support that um, allowed me to recover so quickly. Because ironically, I felt like running a marathon. Now, of course, it's ironic because I can't run. <laughs> but um, but it felt like all these people on the sidelines were cheering me on and had this, this iron belief that I was going to make it. And that, that actually made me think I could make it. And so it is so, so important to open up, to show your vulnerability, to talk about the things that you're struggling with, because that allows people to come and, and help you. Well, it's so important why you just said opening up and, and asking for help. There's absolutely uh, not, nothing wrong with, with asking for um, with asking for, for, for help. I'm here with you up until 9pm and I'm here tonight chatting with Sarah Lagarde. When you, I suppose you had a lot of time Sarah in the trauma ward and in rehab and I know myself from being in hospital, your head can wander over and it can go um it can go everywhere. Personally myself, I didn't know how strong I was until my only option was to be strong and I'm sure you um feel the the same way. What did you actually learn about yourself as an individual while you were in hospital? Did you realise how mentally strong you were that you could get through it? Yes, I mean, I guess I've always been quite <laughs> a stubborn person. That and and I realised that I had a goal set by my children, really, because I remember taking a phone call from my daughter, the little one, and she was distraught and and in and in tears because she thought that I would never come home, that I would be forever in hospital. And at that moment, I made her a promise and said, I'll be home before Christmas. Now, bearing in mind that I had no idea how, you know, how a recovery works and whether I would be able to actually honor my my promise. But having a goal and saying, I'll be home before Christmas became my mantra. And so I really just focused on that. And I guess what I learned was, A, exactly as you said, we are so much stronger than we think we are. Um, and that was something, a notion that I discovered while climbing Kilimanjaro. Because before the climb, people were kind of surprised that I was going to do it. They weren't surprised that my husband was going to do it. He's quite tall and quite sporty. I'm, you know, in comparison, really small and uh, in, in, in size and not that sporty either. And so... It was, I think people underestimated my strength. I underestimated my strength as well. And I still managed to climb it. And I reached a top and it was easier for me than it was for my husband, weirdly, 
he struggled a lot more with the altitude and the cold, etc. And that made me realize, well, actually, we are a lot stronger. And especially when we set ourselves goals and when we, as you say, don't necessarily have the choice. I completely, completely agree with you. There's nothing better in life, I think, than than proving somebody wrong that um that underestimates you and proving that you can you can um get through them. Do you um suffer? I know a few people that are amputees as well, Sarah, that have had um different accidents, but do you ever suffer with um is it called phantom pain that you because even myself I still feel like sometimes that I'm moving my legs when I'm clearly lost. Do you ever suffer from that thinking that your arm is still still there or even nerve pain? Yes, both actually. So the the trouble with phantom pain is that it is disconcerting because you do feel actual pain in a limb that is no longer there. So it ranges from you know this this really strange numbness that it feels like you've got an elastic band around your limb and you know it's 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 really weird it feels heavy it uh, and hard. uncomfortable and uh, and then you've got the shooting pain uh, when it's like a, a an electric shock that you feel in your limbs and then there is the 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 stabbing where you feel like somebody's stabbing your foot with a with a knife so it it ranges from uncomfortable to distressingly uncomfortable um there is medication for it but it's not really that helpful of i find um but i guess the the but the only way to get around it naturally is to seek distraction absolutely and it convinces your your minds i presume that it is the arm is still there like when it's um when it's when it's not the the i suppose i just want to move on to the advances in technology these days, Sarah, with for um, I suppose prosthetics alone, like even um a leg prosthetic or just a a normal one, not kind of an electric one, they're crazy expensive on their own. But then the the one that you have, it's um it's it's unreal. When I was reading up about it, what it what it's able to do, how important do you think that the advances in technology and even since your accident, can you see it getting better and better every day? I think that the technology is incredible today, but it has the potential to be absolutely mind-blowing over yeah. the few, you know, two, five, ten years. Uh, we've just scratched the surface of the possibilities here. And I know that artificial intelligence gets a bad reputation uh, you know, lots of people have this dystopian view that AI will take all of our jobs. Yeah. But in my case, I I am positive about that because I see it as a tool that enhances my capabilities. Right, it restores somewhat my mobility. And uh, and the but the issue is is that you're right. It is crazy expensive because it is not as widespread for uh, prosthetic users so everything um you you can buy is basically tailored to you it's custom made and therefore really expensive but uh, but i hope that over the years and m- me hopefully contributing to the ubiquity of of ai 
powered prosthetics may drive the cost down. And hopefully it's only better it's um it's going to, to get. How does your your one actually work, um, Sarah, just out of curiosity? Is it like is there sensors in there and it kind of picks up small little movements or how exactly does it work? Because I remember watching you on I think it was Good Morning Britain or something there. It was I think it was only a few few months ago. I remember watching you on that. Is it like little sensors in there, Sarah, or how does it actually work? So so this is what I found out. I knew nothing about prosthetics prior to my accident, really. Um, and in my mind, we were still talking about you know a wooden leg. I didn't know anything about the, the advances done by that. Um, but I caught up quite quickly. And in essence, you've got two pathways. Um, you can either go for the invasive uh, route, where you talk about osseointegration, where you basically can insert um, part of the prosthetic inside your arm uh it's that new that's quite new yes and i think you know progress is made every day to make it more wearable and less susceptible to infections but to me that was way too invasive i had had too many operations to consider that one um but the second option is the less invasive version and that is basically you construct a socket that you put on top of your residual limb and inside the socket you've got domes that register your muscle movements but they are on the surface of your skin rather than inside your 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 limb and the it's probably less um less effective but also less risky and for me it was quite easy to understand but then the application is a lot harder so you have to train for months to understand i'm thinking about a movement therefore i twitch my muscles in a certain combination and then the action happens and that was quite a quite a struggle to to get your mind around that it's amazing to see what what technology is and uh, what it what it is doing that one that you just mentioned there and sarah the more invasive one i think i seen it do they actually attach the prosthesis into into the bone on what bit of limb that you have left is that the one that's the one exactly yeah and i mean i'm told that the um, it's quite effective uh but it also looks quite painful it's not painful for the wearer i'm assured but as somebody looking at it it feels quite painful and I'm very conscious about the way I present myself to my children. Um, they were quite traumatized, obviously, by what happened. And I wanted to give them a, a, a perception of me that wasn't that gruesome and that painful. So having a prosthesis that I could take up, you know, put on and take off um, that looked like a friendly robot would be less scary to my children basically how did they they deal with um with the 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 one that you have were they kind of shocked at the start and are they how how did they deal with it seeing it i guess my my children were surprisingly resilient just after the accident had happened and they came to visit uh, me in the hospital with a drawing of everyone in the family including our cats and they drew me 
with a robotic arm and a robotic leg. And this was on day two. And I remember thinking, you know, I don't even know what's going to happen to me. I don't even know whether I will be able to walk again. And yet they already had a vision of what I would look like in the future. So they accepted the robotic limbs um, straight away. Um, I suppose when you did start speaking out about your your accident and what happened to you, to you, I presume, I presume anyway, did you get a lot of, I suppose, messages and emails from people that were in, um, I suppose, similar situations that weren't, that didn't get, I suppose, hurt or harmed as much? Did people get onto you that have seen people do it or have fallen themselves? Yes. Yeah, so since I started talking publicly about what happened, I have received hundreds and hundreds of messages of people who had fallen down the gap as well, but were saved at the last second. Um, I heard about, you know, luggage falling down the gap, pets, children, prams, elderly, you know, uh, women, men getting their, their scarves and coats stuck and being dragged along the platform. I've heard people injuring their knees and ankles. And and what's really scary is that every single story, and, you know, I've, I've, I've saved them all, um, the, the narrative is the same, is that there is no staff on the platform. And even when it's reported to staff, when they find somebody, um, they don't record it. I think over in um, in New York in the the underground, it, I don't know if it's in New York or a different country, they're after bringing in a kind of a safety thing where there's, on the platform, there's like a long thing and when the train stops, it's an automatic door opens up. I, have you seen that online or anything? Yeah, I, I've seen, I mean, if you look at the London Underground, you see that the newer lines, like the Elizabeth line and the Jubilee line, they have these um, divider doors yeah. that are that that open. It's like a double door protection, and so there's no way you can actually fa- fall down the gap with that protection. And it leads me to believe that you know TfL know that there is a problem. Therefore, they have installed those doors, but they have only installed those doors on two lines as opposed to all the others, you know. Hopefully hopefully that they they get on to, to do to the, the rest of them. Was, would I be right in saying there's about two million people that use the the undergrounds in um, in London every day? That's right. I mean, these are the figures that, you know, I got from, from TfL. But they also say that every month there's 16 cases similar to mine where people get, you know, maimed for life or or die. And this is not, you know, um, this is not the, the 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 attempts of suicide or, you know, this is accidents. And I, I'd rather we call them incidents. Yeah. And uh and I I find that astonishing and so terrible that you know i guess statistically it is a very 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 small percentage out of all of the you know millions of journeys but these are 16 humans 
you know, and we live in a first world country, the aim should be zero. It is not acceptable. One is too much. Exactly. Exactly. It is. It's um. It's it's too much. Have you? I suppose you probably. I don't know. Have you or not? Have you gone back onto an underground since, or are you ready for that mentally? Not really. And there's there are several reasons for that. Is that you know if the if the London Underground wasn't safe when I had four limbs, it's not going to be safer now that I only have two. Um, my balance is 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 very off. Um, I find it really difficult to be in crowds because I'm always worried that somebody could knock me over. Um, so that's reason number one. Reason number two is that, and they have made no changes following my accident. They, you know, argue that they said mind the gap, so I should have minded the gap. <laughs> so I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm not keen. I'm also suffering from PTSD. The sound of trains causes nightmares. Do you get a lot of flashbacks? I do, um, I do, and you know, there's, yeah, it's it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant at all. Um, before we finish up there, Lassie, I want to, to ask you: Do you have any other, um, I suppose, long term goals that you'd like to, to to accomplish? Do you think that in the future that maybe the advances in technology and I suppose that's coming every day uh, in London or America or around the world. Do you think that's something that'll come in that you might be able to, I suppose, for instance, drive a car in the future with your, with the processes? How would you think that something like that will come available? I believe so. I believe in, in technology for good. I think that, you know, we, we should admire everyone who works in the NHS. We should admire the, 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 the engineers and scientists and software developers who are passionate about what they do and to advance these, um, these prosthesis really. And I believe that there will be, hopefully, a lot of positive change happening. I also make it my mission now to raise awareness well, first of all, that, you know, um, we think we are safe when we board the tube. Um, my accident is proof that we are not. And I want to raise awareness for people to be more careful. And lastly, I want to showcase that disability um, is not equal to our lives being over. I you know, want to showcase a positive um presence in society that despite the fact that we are disabled we can still contribute positively to society the 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 saying that i always um use is um the only disability in life is a bad attitude and like you said you want to use it to to show people that just because you have a, a disability that doesn't mean that you can't go out and i suppose navigate around the world and work in places and and everything i think that there's a a couple of books anyway in your um, in your story and your <laughs> life, Sarah. So thanks so much for, for coming on today now. And I, I really appreciate you, um, I suppose, t t opening up and telling your story. And I know that's going to help others to, to hopefully appreciate the, the small things in life because 
we do take them for granted, don't we? Yes, absolutely. You're so right. I mean, now, you know, I, I appreciate every single tiny moment. It doesn't have to be big. You know, we don't have to chase the big career, the big money, all of that. There's small moments that are so, so important. And the the thought of helping others is a lot more satisfying than any other thing, I believe. It is. Sarah, thanks so much. And I'm um, happy to hear you and to uh, all your family. I hope that you you stay stay safe and um, have a great year ahead. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me on the show. Now, unfortunately, that's all we have time for tonight. I hope you all enjoyed the show and I appreciate you tuning in as always. A massive thanks to Sarah for coming on tonight and having a chat about her own story. It's a crazy story what happened to her and it's... um. It's not every day you hear from somebody like that, so it was a, a bit of a different interview tonight and I hope you you enjoyed it and um, I hope you learned something from Sarah and her, I suppose, outlook in life and how she's gotten over the the obstacles and the adversity that um, that came in her way. Um, kind of like myself, I have a similar mindset to, to Sarah, you know, to keep going and try and overcome adversity and um, I suppose look at life and the... Uh, the best possible um, way that we, we can. So I hope you all enjoyed it. And um, again, a massive thanks to Sarah for coming on and opening up about her own story. I'm sure it's not easy. So she's helping a lot of people around the world, sharing her message on social media as well. So thanks to, to Sarah. If you have any questions or suggestions for next week's show, you can contact me through my Instagram, enoconnell321. On my email address, ioconnell at radiocarry.ie, you can send me a message on my Twitter, enoconnell00. Stay tuned in here to Radio Kerry because Brian Priestley is up next with That's Jazz. I'll be back at the same time next Wednesday night from 8 to 9pm. Until then, stay safe and mind yourself. You're listening to Stand Out with Enoconnell. Wednesday evenings from 8pm here on Radio Kerry.